Listeners, this is Gerard Robinson. Welcome to another wonderful session of The Learning Curve. Recently, I've had an opportunity to co-host with someone else who you've already heard from. And this week, I get a chance to co-host again. My regular co-host, Kara, is trotting around the earth. And so we want to make sure her and her family's got a great time. But we always want to make sure that we get great people on here uh, to talk to our guests and to also talk to you. And so, of course, we reached out to Carrie McDonald, who has been with us before. And Carrie, welcome back to The Learning Curve. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Gerard. Thanks for inviting me. How are things for you in Boston? Things are doing great. My primary work is with the Foundation for Economic Education, the country's oldest free market think tank. And I just launched a new podcast, the Liberated Podcast, which is a weekly podcast on education-related issues that kind of connect to free markets and individual liberty. Well, I've definitely retweeted several of the posts that you sent out, and you always keep things really interesting. So when we talk about posts, we also talk about stories. And I've got one story of the week and you've got one as well. As our guest, I'll let you kick us off with telling us the story that caught your attention. Sure. So my article that I thought was really interesting for us to talk about today is from the Washington Post. And it is entitled, Education, Traditionally a Strength, Has Democrats on Their Heels. It was posted on February 22nd, it looks like. And it really, I think, describes some of the challenges that Democratic candidates are confronting and will continue to confront over the coming months in terms of re-election campaigns or getting into office. And this was made clear, certainly when we all saw Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin win the gubernatorial race there, running on a platform of parents matter as the kind of contrarian to his opponent who was sort of downplaying the role of parents in the classroom and education. And I think Democrats are realizing that they have an uphill climb here in kind of sidelining parents and they're kind of strategizing what they can do about it. Well, Carrie, as you know, both of us are big proponents of parental opportunity, parental choice. And as you mentioned, Virginia, of course, I live here in Charlottesville, supported the governor, also supported our now lieutenant governor and attorney general. Parents matter, but when you really want to see how much they matter, go after things they think are important. And so in Northern Virginia, when there was a big push to change the entrance requirements into Thomas Jefferson High School, arguably the best public high school in the country, when they began to tinker with what I would often call color coding classrooms for purposes of equity, and legitimately we should have questions and concerns about equity and opportunity, but it was done in a way that made parents across the racial and economic barriers say, something about this just seems like you're trying to cook the books and we don't like it. And so with that, also with the fact that Virginia was one of the top five states to open up their public schools for the least amount of time with millions of dollars point in, it just made people think differently and ask different questions. And so I think what we saw here in Virginia is an example of what we may see in other places. And in fact, that leads me to my story of the week from the New York Times. And it's focused on the recall of three school board members in San Francisco. Now, let's go back a year ago. And when you think of San Francisco, you think about progressive things the school board's done. You think about the opportunities they try to give low-income students. You talk about the city being very progressive. And yet when they decided to move forward with a 
a plan to say we're going to change the requirements to create a lottery system in order to allow students to go into Lowell High School. My friends who graduated from Lowell would never want me to say that I'm comparing Lowell to Thomas Jefferson in Virginia. But what I will say is that Lowell is arguably one of the best public high schools in the country. Like a Thomas Jefferson, it's a merit-based system to get in. And they were tinkering with that again for issues of equity. Like a Lowell High School where approximately 50% of the students are Asian, Thomas Jefferson High School, even a larger percentage. And so you had that taking place, plus as in Virginia, at least in San Francisco, they were not opening up the schools as fast as people would have wanted, even when they were given a green light by the authorities to do so. And then when you couple that with a crusade by some of the members to change the names of some of the schools, Understandably, some of the names were are affiliated with horrible aspects of American history. And they said, we should change it, we should move forward. When you bring these three things into play, parents ask two simple questions. Number one, I hear what you're saying, but what are you doing for my children and their education right now? And there wasn't much they saw really taking place. And number two, they said, well, you as an elected board member, what are you gonna to do to try to change the dynamics of how we move forward? And after a long campaign, three board members were ousted. And to put it in perspective, when you look at the fact that you've got, you know, 70% of the voters who turned out and said, listen, we want to recall the members. Out of the 499,771 registered voters, 128,862 were counted. And they basically supported the recall 74% for one candidate and moved 70% for the others. Uh, the Board of Supervisors will now have to certify the results. Those three board members will be replaced by the mayor. The mayor will appoint three new members, and then, of course, there'll be an election coming forward. And so this is just another example of families deciding not to wait for politicians to make decisions for them. They decided to vote with their actual vote and to do some things there. So it's a big shakeup in that system. This has been the year, I would say maybe the last year and a half of school board uh, recall efforts more than we've seen in the last 10 years. So San Francisco is an interesting story. And even when we talk about San Francisco as a school system, and there are some great things that are taking place in that school system. We overlook the fact that there are over 90 private schools in San Francisco, that you have approximately 22,000 students in private schools. You have, again, a little more than 55,000 in the school system, most of them, many of them students of color. And so in a place that promotes equity, opportunity, and equality, doesn't seem to really pan itself out in the city and the, and the voters have spoken. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and I think you're right. It was a breathtaking recall of those three school board members in what is considered a very left-leaning progressive city but yet has similar themes to what we were just talking about related to the Virginia race and certainly other Democratic races coming up, that parents are frustrated, particularly with ongoing coronavirus policies in schools. They want more of a voice. They want school board members to be accountable and to be focusing on the issues that really matter to them. And so, you know, I think it would be certainly an interesting campaign cycle this year. I remember some years ago when the Tea Party started to make its rise in local, state, and then national politics, Speaker Pelosi referred to it as AstroTurf and then to becoming a real grassroots movement. When you take a look at this current recall, there are some people who are saying these aren't real parents 
who were fired up. These were really hedge fund executives. These were millionaires. These were moms and dads, some who didn't have children in the public school, who were the ones that put up money to support taking neighborhoods for a better San Francisco or other initiatives. And when I heard, hear people say that, I said, well, A, even if you don't have a child in your public school system, you're still a taxpayer. And so you're paying into that system. Even if you have children in private schools, you also can still vote for someone on the public school board. And in California, which is a big, not only it's a referendum state, you often put things before voters to do so. People from the left and the right put millions of dollars into campaigns every year. In fact, we saw this recently with Gavin Newsom in his recall race. And so I just find it interesting when certain groups of people lose, we say it's money. And yet when they win, we say it's voters. Right. And I again, I think that if politicians continue with this strategy of demonizing parents and painting them as something that they're not and, you know, criticizing their motives and that sort of thing, it's just going to backfire on these politicians. The work that you're doing at your think tank and, of course, what you're learning with your own research and, and your, uh, your podcast, what are you hearing parents say? Are they feeling empowered just across the board? They still feel that they're attacked or is it somewhere in the middle? Yeah, you know, I've been really interested in the flood of education entrepreneurship that has emerged over the past couple of years. Parents demanding more options, wanting various alternatives to an assigned district school, and then entrepreneurs stepping up to create these new options and provide more choices for families. And of course, we're also seeing it on the policy side, too, with school choice legislation expanding in many states and there being a lot of momentum for that. And I think we'll continue to see that. So the combination of education entrepreneurship and legislative changes that it expand school choice policies at the state level, I think are really going to be a win for families across the country. I had an opportunity to travel to Milwaukee last fall, I believe it was September, to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program. At that, well, still is the oldest urban-based parental choice school voucher program in the country. I say urban-based because, as we know, some New England states, in fact, have had you know parental choice programs going back to the 19th century. What was so enlightening to me, I would maybe, maybe it's frightening to me, were the number of young people, let's say under 25, who, when they heard about you know the role that Apolly Williams played in this movement, African-American Democrat, state representative, single mom, who at one time was a, a campaign person for Jesse Jackson in the 80s when he ran for office. It was her partnering with a Republican governor, partnering with other Democrats and some Republicans to say, we want to make this happen. And they were shocked to know, A, that there was actually bipartisan support for vouchers mm-hmm. at the beginning. And number two, that in fact, it, were, it was a group of parents who actually pushed for this to happen because in their world, they think what they hear now about parental empowerment is actually new, when in fact it's been going on for decades on both sides of the fence, but at least as it may, remains with the modern, I would call the modern school choice movement, many of them really are shocked to know that it used to be bipartisan and that there was actually a parental voice in this movement. Yeah. And again, I think that over the past couple of years, as parents have been frustrated with school closures and remote learning and the unpredictability of their children's classrooms, that's really inspired parents to become more involved and maybe to look at school choice 
when they wouldn't have previously. They would have they may have thought it was a, a political angle or not know much about it. And then kind of living it over the past couple of years and saying, gee, my school's closed for in-person learning. Wouldn't it be nice if I was able to take my tax dollars elsewhere, for example? You know, that kind of personalization of school choice, I think, has really captured a lot of parents' attention. Are there some lessons that you think you and I should share with the entrepreneurs who are now involved in the work, families who may be new to the movement? Any thoughts from our experience that we can share for them to have them avoid some of the pitfalls that we may have seen when we initially got started? That's such a great question. For entrepreneurs, I think it's spotting needs and uh, demand from parents in specific areas and then imagining these new possibilities and new solutions beyond perhaps what we think of as conventional schooling. I mean, I think that's one thing that this coronavirus response has triggered is really looking at education beyond schooling and seeing all of the different ways that it can be done. I think, for example, of a company, a startup here in the Boston area called KaiPod Learning that participated in the prestigious Y Combinator Startup Accelerator Program in Silicon Valley and and has some investment backing there. And they're doing some really great things about bringing students together, multi-age, kind of a micro-school environment in these sort of commercial storefront areas with adult facilitators, but the students bring with them an online curriculum or some kind of virtual learning system that they've created or that they've purchased or perhaps even one of the public ones. And then they're with other students during the day in these spaces that are facilitated by adults, that the adults create these enrichment opportunities for kids. And so it kind of breaks down some of the barriers that we see with remote learning, some of the separation that students might feel, some of the loneliness, and it brings that back into kind of a real learning space, but still customizable with kind of the benefits of remote learning. So I think we'll still continue to see more of those kinds of innovations and entrepreneurship. And then the key really, I think, for policymakers is to remove barriers for these entrepreneurs in general, and especially for education entrepreneurs, lower regulations and encourage this growth of education alternatives throughout various states. I agree. The thing I would share with entrepreneurs and parents is not to take a legislative victory for granted. Legislatures change either because of change in party or you can still have members of the same party in power, but they can change their point of view. I mean, to think today that you have Democrats in DC and in state legislatures arguing to either stop the momentum for charter schools or to try to get rid of them altogether would have been thought of as heresy. When you think about the fact that President Bill Clinton was the one who helped to create what became Charter School Week, the office of charter schools in the Department of Ed. It was, in fact, in your state, Tom Birmingham, California, Gary Hart, Emory Young in Minnesota. It was Democrats, in fact, who helped lead the charter school movement and played a strong role in opening up those doors of opportunities to family. Well, fast forward today, 30 years later, and not looking the same. So I would definitely say don't rest on your laurels because a governor signs a bill. You have to remain tenacious and follow what's going on. That means you have to go to all the board meetings. If you can, great, but work with organizations, advocacy groups that actually follow this work, because that's one of the things that shocked me 30 years into this work, that some of our friends have become enemies and some of our enemies have become friends, and that some people who believe parental choice was important 15 years ago think it's a albatross today. 
Yeah, I think that's why it really points to the need for culture change and really kind of reaching the hearts and minds of parents, because you're right, you know, politicians change, political momentum sways different directions. And so it really is about showing parents the real benefit of education choice and freedom. Absolutely. Anything else you want to share with our listeners that's on your mind, maybe even not the article that you read, but but something else you want us to know before we go to our guests? No, I'm really excited for our guest. Of course, I'm a Bostonian, a lifelong Bostonian and a sports fan here. So it'll be great to talk to him. Yeah, listeners, the him that she's talking about is going to join us. It's Howard Bryant. He is the author of nine award-winning books focused on sports, particularly baseball. And so we've got some questions for him. Look forward to bringing him on board. Now, you grew up in Boston. I grew up in Los Angeles, big Dodgers fan. So that part I won't hold against you. And, uh, <laughs> I'll try to stay away from some of the uh, West Coast questions, but look forward to having him and I uh, look forward to us tag teaming for that part of the show. Absolutely. Okay, we'll be right back. Well, I'm so excited to have Howard Bryan join us for a conversation. Howard Bryan is the author of nine award-winning books, Full Dissidents, Notes from an Uneven Playing Ground, all the way to books about Sisters and Champions, the true story of Venus and Serena Williams, illustrated by Floyd Cooper, and he's contributed essays to 14 others. He's been a senior writer for ESPN since 2007 and has served as a sports correspondent for NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday since 2006. Previously, Howard Bryan worked at the Washington Post, the Boston Herald, the record in Hackensack, New Jersey, and the San Jose Mercury News. In fact, we're also gonna add the Oakland Tribune. Uh, in addition, he's appeared in several documentaries, including Baseball, The 10th Inning, and Jackie Robinson, both directed by Ken Burns and major league legend Hank Aaron, which was produced by Smithsonian and Major League Baseball. Howard, thank you so much for joining us. Now it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Howard, I'm gonna kick us off with some questions. You grew up in Boston in the 1970s. I'm born and raised in the Boston area and also a big Boston sports fan. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the South Shore in Weymouth. Yeah, we used to play you guys. <laughs> Probably. When we, when we moved to Plymouth, I played at Plymouth Carver and you, we played Weymouth oh, North and Weymouth South. Which one were you? That's right. Yeah, well, when I was there, it consolidated back to Weymouth High. Oh, you're so, yeah, must be a I, youngster. I graduated in 95. Ah, yes. Yeah, but the old Colony League and yeah, good memories. So your first book is Shut Out, A Story of Race and Baseball in Boston, would you share with our listeners some of the history of abolitionism, ethnic conflict, and deeply troubling race relations that sets the larger context for understanding Boston, the Red Sox, and race, as well as your own personal experiences being a student baseball fan and sports writer in Boston? Sure. Well, I think that one of the things about that book that has always appealed to me and it appealed to me at the time, which is why I wanted to do it, was I think when you grow up black in Boston and you're a baseball fan, so much of your fandom is rooted in the history of the Red Sox, that the Red Sox were the last team to integrate 
1959 with Pumsey Green, and not only that, but they could have been the first. They had an opportunity to, they had the first chance to sign Jackie Robinson in 1945 and didn't do it. So not only did they miss out on Jackie Robinson, but instead of becoming the first, the pioneer, they became the last, which was infamous for that franchise. And in between, they had opportunities to sign numerous great players, including they had the first shot at Willie Mays in 1948. And so these stories played on top of each other. And as time went on, as you know, I grew up in the 70s. And even then, the Red Sox did not really have a high number of black players. Race was always central, of course. During that time, you had busing as well happening with the public schools, the, you know, the Racial Imbalance Act. And all of this, to me, had always been written through the lens of everybody but the black people who had to live it. It was about whether or not the folks in Southie felt aggrieved or whether or not Judge Garrity's ruling was fair or not fair, whether or not Tom Yockey was a racist. And all of these things didn't take into account the humanity of the players, of the African-American players who had to live in Boston or the African-American kids who had to go to those schools and deal with what was taking place, or the black families who had to make these decisions, like my family, about whether or not they were going to put their kids in that environment. And so you grow up and you become a, a journalist, and this is eating at you. And one of the reasons I became a journalist was the idea of watching a basketball game or watching a baseball game and then reading the story in the Boston Globe the next day. And, or the Herald, and you say, well, that's not what I remember. So I loved the idea of being able to say what I thought happened last night and how I wanted to represent these different pieces of history. And so that was really the genesis of that book. And I think that one of the interesting things about that project was learning everything that was taking place in between and that the, the Red Sox, the Red Sox have always had a prominent place in the history of race and Major League Baseball. But they really weren't that different from any other team at that time. I mean, the Yankees were just as racist as the Red Sox, so were the Tigers and the Philadelphia Phillies. They weren't really unique. What made them unique was even when the game began to integrate, even after Jackie Robinson and after Willie Mays and Henry Aaron and Frank Robinson and all those great players, even then the Red Sox still, when everybody else was moving forward, the Red Sox stayed behind. And they had stayed behind as a franchise. The Red Sox were sued twice by the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination for not hiring any black employees, both, I believe, in 1951 and also in 1959. So this history was deeply embedded in the franchise, and it made rooting for the team a very curious experience. Maybe we can dig deeper into this. You mentioned Jackie Robinson. Of course, he's among the most celebrated sports figures in American history. Could you discuss his infamous tryout with the Red Sox in April of 1945 and how he and other black players, including Reggie Smith, Jim Rice, Dennis, Oil Can Boyd, <laughs> Mo Vaughn, Mookie Betts, were treated in Boston and why? Sure. I think that the tryout is one of the great moments in baseball history because it shows you that it, it always frustrated me when people would refer to baseball integration as the color line, as if it were this immutable space that somehow was like broken. Instead, integration had been a conversation. It had been an issue that had been going on, obviously, since the 1800s, since black players were kicked out of the game in the late 1800s. And so everyone has, had known what was taking place and everyone knew that integration or segregation in baseball was very much in line with the increasing segregation in Jim Crow that was taking place across the country. 
And so you come out of World War II, and World War II is a fight for freedom. World War II is the referendum that freedom triumphed over fascism and that this was a titanic struggle for the human spirit. And yet this is how black people are being treated in the United States. And so the entire idea, not just in the military, because let's not forget that during this titanic struggle for freedom, the United States military is segregated. They're not an integrated unit until 1948. And so how long could you keep this society separate? How long could this last while these other events are taking place around the world and while the United States is positioning itself? as the victor, as the difference maker in terms of the direction of world history. And one of the areas where you saw this meritocracy needing to be corrected was in sports, something as simple as sports, as ridiculous as a baseball game. And you could see why this was so important, because if these players could play together on the same field, if they could travel together, if they could shower together, if they could eat together, if they could room together, then why can't they go to school together? Why can't they live in the same neighborhood? So on the one hand, sports may seem ephemeral, but on the other hand, it's extremely important because if these things can take place on a daily basis, then why can't they take place on a daily basis in our everyday lives? So the Red Sox were the first team to have an opportunity that integration simply because of one person, of Isidore Muchnick, a Boston City Councilor from West Roxbury, who had the temerity to demand that the Red Sox lead in terms of living up to Boston's history as one of the great integrated cities in the 1700s, as the place where you did have integrated schools early on, to live up to Boston's Revolutionary War history, even though Boston was a loyalist city, but so be it. And... Um, and the Red Sox brought in three players, Marvin Williams, Jackie Robinson, and Sam Jethro on April 16th, 1945. And they hit a few balls and they wore Red Sox uniforms. So there, I wish there had been a photo of it where Jackie Robinson actually was wearing a Boston Red Sox uniform. And they hit a few balls and then they said, thank you very much. And none of the players ever heard from the Red Sox again. And Jackie Robinson took that bitterness to his grave. Sam Jethro, as it turned out, ended up integrating in Boston anyway, five years later with the Boston Braves and ended up winning Rookie of the Year. So he was the first. So he was in that tryout in 1945 and ended up playing in Boston with the Braves before they moved to Milwaukee. And then, of course, now they play in Atlanta. So the deep history of race and integration runs right through Boston, whether we want it to or not, especially when you look at Boston's history of abolition. And part of that that legend of Boston, part of that legacy of Boston, people wanted to hold on to in that first 18th, 17th, 18th century history. They wanted that to translate into the 20th century. And then, of course, it really didn't. And so it's interesting when you're a longtime Bostonian, you know the difference between what we grew up reading in the textbooks and then what the history turned into. Really interesting. You know, we've been talking a lot about the Red Sox, but let's shift gears to the Celtics. One of the greatest athletes in Boston sports is the Celtics basketball legend, Bill Russell. Could you talk a little bit about his experiences playing in Boston in the late 1950s and 60s and why even today that, you know, we have this modest statue downtown, but there seems to be little dedicated to Bill Russell's historic achievements uh, and his mm -hmm. leadership yeah, of course, um, with of course. the Celtics. Yeah. yeah, well, because this is the thing. On the one hand, you have to think about what was taking place during this time. 
So on the one hand, in the 1940s, the 1945, you have the Red Sox tryout. The Red Sox don't integrate. The Red Sox don't integrate until 1959. The Braves integrate in 1950, but they move after the 1952 season to Milwaukee. The Celtics have Red Arbeck as their coach in the late 50s. They bring in Bill Russell. They, draft, they trade for Bill Russell in uh, the 1956 draft. And the Celtics become a dynasty. And the Celtics not only become a dynasty, but the Celtics become leaders. If you contrast the Red Sox and the Celtics, the Red Sox have this miserable racial history. And the Celtics, on the other hand, win eight straight championships. Bill Russell wins 11 championships in 13 years. The Celtics break the unspoken taboo in the NBA of always having a majority number of white players on the court. You always had to have three to two at the very least, or at the very, yeah, at the very, at the very most. And Red Arbeck has five black players on the court at the same time, so he breaks that unspoken rule. Red Arbeck breaks the rule of having, he's the first black coach. He hires Bill Russell in 1966 to be the first black head coach of the major sports. So on the one hand, you've got this terrible racial history on the Red Sox side. And then across town over at North Station, you've got this pioneering spirit with one major problem. Most fans didn't want to watch black players. They didn't really love basketball. Basketball wasn't a big sport at the time. And Bill Russell had a miserable time living in Boston, had a very, a very difficult difficult experience in Boston in terms of how he navigated the city. He used to refer to it as a flea market of racism. And so, and a very, very proud guy. And so he was not going to be conciliatory toward the city. The city had problems. He won his championships and he had his relationships and then he left. And so that negotiation, that relationship had has been 60 years of attempted reconciliations and silence in a lot of ways. I think things have obviously calmed down now, but for most of the time, you looked at somebody, Bill Russell is the greatest champion that this country has ever produced in terms of championships. Because before he came to the Celtics, he won back-to-back -back championships in college and an Olympic gold medal in 1956 in Melbourne. So this great champion was never really celebrated in Boston, and it's only been in the last 20, 25 years where you could even see a little bit of a thaw. In the wonderful books that you've published, you've not only focused on baseball and basketball in Boston, your hometown, but you've also talked about sports across the area, including what we're looking at in terms of high school and NCAA sports. So when I think about sports today, from youth to high school to college, even to the pros, it's really a multi-billion dollar business. And it's got a wide appeal amongst a pretty energetic fan base. The media will cover it. Sports, even high school sports, find its way into our popular culture. Could you talk about the current state of the NCAA and professional sports regarding which leagues are doing a better job than the other in addressing larger racial disparities or even concerns about what it should look like in our national debate? Well, I think that if you go and look at the history of it, I think that sports is always going to be important. And at some point it became America's religion. If you go back to the 1800s, nobody cared about, I mean, baseball was a sport, but it didn't matter. I mean, baseball and cycling and walking, these and horse racing later on would become these sports. But when you start looking at it in terms of how to become American, 
you have really three waves. And I think the first wave is the immigration era, where you have this great exodus coming from Europe during the Industrial Revolution of Italians and Jews and Poles and Germans. And how did those kids become American? Their parents didn't speak English, but they became Americanized by playing sports, by playing baseball in the street and boxing and, and the rest of it. This was the pathway to Americanizing for those first generations of immigrants. And the second wave is the integration era. Once again, when you think about the large American institutions, the institution of sports integrated before all of them. Sports integrated before most schools, sports integrated before the military, sports integrated before television, sports integrated before journalism, it integrated before all of it. And so, and especially when you're looking at it from an intercollegiate perspective, the predominantly white institutions, they weren't looking at the HBCUs for their doctors and their scientists and their lawyers. They wanted their ball players. So still at the root of it all was the use and utility of the black physical body. And that's really the area where you started to see the colleges integrate. And then of course you get to this third era, which is the economics. And now that starting in the mid 70s, when you start to get free agency in baseball, and then obviously as the money gets bigger in all of the sports, the money also gets bigger in college sports. And as the money gets bigger and bigger, you see a change in the priority. And one of the arguments had always been in the integration of the athlete was that this was going to be a pathway for these black students, student athletes, they like to call them to have a broader experience, to be exposed to more and to get an education and that there, there was a trade taking place, your physical prowess for the opportunity to be on a college campus. And now you look at it today and we know that a lot of these players aren't being educated at all. They're there to make money for their universities. And so that mission in so many ways has been lost. And you think about this from the standpoint now where the debate is whether or not we should just pay the players. And it's a good argument to have considering that the NCAA, that college football and college basketball are so incredibly lucrative. And so you're starting to see some of this change. But while it's changing, you also have to say, whatever happened to educating these students? Whatever happened to educating these players? And so have we simply given up on that piece of it? And now we're just going to admit that the players are there to earn, they're there to work, but they're not there to learn. Very good point. You mentioned student athletes, and I think it's someone like Arthur Ashe who played at UCLA, Tiger Woods played at Stanford, the Williams sisters in Compton playing sports, but mother and father making sure they take their academics pretty seriously. They've all been pioneering players in a respective sport. And we also think about what that means in terms of what sometimes in our communities call uh, bearing the cross for the race. Would you share your views about how these athletes were treated, lessons learned, and maybe even how they managed or mismanaged their status as celebrities in American culture? Well, I think that what you have when it comes to black athletes, and you see it, I talked about a lot of this in, in my 2018 book, The Heritage this responsibility that the black athlete has that they're not supposed to have. And that the goal, to me at least, is that one day they won't have it, that black people are the only people in this country who rely so heavily on people who hit a ball with a stick or who put a ball through a hoop or who can run really fast. And this all goes back to this deal that had been made during the 20th century about the ones who made it. The athlete is the one who made it. 
And the athlete is the one who made it even more so than the entertainers. And the difference between the Prince and Michael Jackson's and Diana Ross's and Beyonce's and Count Basie's of the world is that you didn't need a movement for them to perform. They could always perform for white people. Go back to the Cotton Club, go back to the, go back even earlier into the 1800s. Black people have always performed for white people. But sports, you needed a movement. Sports, you actually had to have a physical movement that led into the civil rights ever. Even Martin Luther King used to say, you know, that Jackie Robinson was the beginning of the civil rights movement. And so because of that, there's this responsibility that the black athlete has had to bear that cross. And I always refer to the black athlete. They are the most visible, the most successful, and the most influential black employees this country's ever produced. That is not always a compliment, but it is true because this country has spent so much time using sports as the antidote to racism that in no other place is, is it fair but if my 40 time is faster than yours, if I score more runs than you, if I score more points than you, I get to win. Then that is supposed to be pure, even though we know in sports that's not the case either. But that has been the argument that sports could provide for us this pathway toward colorblindness that really doesn't exist. But that's why it's so important. And that's why we spend so much time looking at the Serena Williamses of the world and looking at the LeBron Jameses of the world and hoping that they use their platform as we hear so often now, the Colin Kaepernick's, that they are the ones who provide for us a level of visibility that really isn't fair to them, but it is what it has been. This is what has been created. And to me, the goal really shouldn't be imploring the black athletes to constantly you know, speak for black America, but that one day they can just play ball and let's leave it to other people who are in better positions to lead us. Great points. In fact, you made me think of a question when you talked about the black athlete earlier of saying, let's just go to school and just play sports. You're not truly a scholar athlete. And we overlook the fact that our community has got a lot of examples of scholar athletes. I mean, I think of someone like Chris Howard, who is a president of Robert Morris College. He, he went to the Air Force Academy, Rhodes Scholar, doctorate from Oxford, and now he's a college president, but he was a Campbell Award winner when he was in college. And even if you go back in time, as you talk about history, you maybe think about uh, Dr. Roscoe Brown, who many yeah, people know as president of a community college in New York, Tuskegee Airmen. But you know what? Before Jim Brown, he was actually the one who was a major lacrosse player and later became a scholar in his own right. How do we close that gap or maybe open up the door of opportunity to talk about true scholar athletes, both men and women? Well, I think it's a priority. It's not just a black party. It's a priority, period. And what are your priorities? What are your values? What do you respect? And I think that we are completely, as a country, enamored with this lottery, this sort of capitalist lottery that one day you can be famous. I mean, that is not a that is not even a racial designation. That's what we all do. Everyone wants to play this lottery, and but the stakes are higher when you have less, and black people as a as a people have less. So this magic bullet, the one who made it, is the narrative that we all gravitate toward. And it's very tiring. It's very tiring to people in the black community who are like, hey, this is not all there is. And think about what we're doing to the people who don't make it. And this whole idea of this narrative being debtor in jail. Well, if, I, if it weren't for sports, I'd be debtor in jail. Well, if that is the case, after all of these decades, that being able to bounce a ball 
is still your best chance, then we failed. We failed miserably. Mm -hmm. And yet that is still the prevailing narrative. And that's why we pay so much attention to sports, not just because we're entertained and it's amazing to to watch Patrick Mahomes or to watch Lamar Jackson play football. It's because this is still the way out story. And it's very tired. And it shows you just how much institutional political failure we're enduring. Well, thanks to the work that you do, both in book form, essays, op-eds, but also in movies, you're starting to at least get us thinking, us across the board, on what it means to be American, what it means to be great, what it means to be a genius, both on the court and off the court, but also realizing that if we can't get some of this right outside of sports, then we're putting so much on the athletes to do, which uh, is unfair to them. But thank you for your intellectualism, your humor, your wit, and your common sense approach to issues that are often tough for people to talk about. Thank you for the work you're doing and keep it up. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So the tweet of the week, Gerard, is a tweet by Education Week on February 21st. And I don't know if you're into Wordle at all, but my kids are definitely into this new, you know, word game. It's a daily activity and exercise that they have a lot of fun with. And so Education Week tweeted out a video saying you can pick up on patterns of words that match together to make certain words and use more skills than you think you do when you first start. This was a a fourth grade teacher said that these teachers are using Wordle to teach phonics in their classrooms. So just a really exciting, creative way of using what is right now kind of a cultural trend to make learning better in the classroom. Well, thank you for that tweet of the week and for educating me. I will now take a look at it. And next week's guest is Linda Chavez, who is a senior fellow at the National Immigration Forum and the author of Out of the Barrio, Toward a New Politics of Hispanic Assimilation. Carrie, again, thank you so much for joining me as a co-host this week. Really enjoyed what you had to share from your story, but also the advice that you shared with all of us about not only entrepreneurship, but about parental choice, but just really keep us thinking about what I believe is one of the most important uh, social movements in the last quarter century. So glad you were here with me. Always a pleasure, Gerard. Thanks again. Take care, everyone. See you next week.